This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Exactly a year ago, we had a lame duck PM clinging on to Downing Street by their fingertips, a Tory party bitterly divided, no idea what Brexit meant, Labour MPs at war with their leader, and Andrea Leadsom still thought that, as a mother, she could be Prime Minister. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This week, Theresa May marks, can we say celebrate, a year since she replaced David Cameron in Downing Street. Her election gamble did not pay off. Allies dismiss leadership plotting as loose talk over warm Prosecco. So what should Theresa May do now? I'm joined this week by two people who perhaps know her best. Katie Perrier, who was May's Director of Communications in Number 10 until the election was called, tells us why the PM needs to cheer up and offer some hope. And in his first interview since leaving Downing Street, Chris Brannigan, who was Head of Government Relations, issues a warning about how to deal with business. Plus, Sam Coates, Deputy Political Editor of the Times, is here to assess the Prime Minister's chances of survival. Welcome to you all. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device so it appears as if by magic every week and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. We kick off with Chris Bannigan. The Prime Minister has a relationship with the business community that I would describe as unorthodox compared to previous occupants of Number 10. I think over her first year, she created a parity of access for a wider range of businesses in different sectors and regions than those of her predecessors. And I think her challenge lies in balancing the access given to major industrial and economic players, whilst also keeping an eye on the needs of small and medium enterprises. One-size-fits-all solutions tend to end up satisfying no one. So, Chris, just explain for people who don't know what the Head of Government Relations does. So I looked after all of the communication and conduits for that communication in and out of Number 10. So in three key areas, firstly and primarily in business, which is where the majority of that work lay, and then secondly in looking at third sector, which no one had done from Number 10 previously, and then lastly with faith community engagement, which also had not been done in as formal and as structured a way as we had when when we started last year. And... What were the challenges? How did you find that process? The challenges lie in 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 primarily where the majority of the work lies. So there had been a degree of inherited structure, um, but that had been based upon 
what I'd describe, I guess, is the usual suspects who would like to turn up to number 10 and say, because of my weight or structure or input, you know, there's a degree of um, uh, access that we should feel as though we're entitled to. And actually, the Prime Minister's view is that if you stand in front of a banner that says we're a country that works for everybody and wants to speak to everybody, then part of my task was finding a way that she could go out and do that. And of course, that then runs across the spectrum. Not everyone identifies themselves through their profession, might identify themselves through their faith or what they do on a voluntary basis, or what they do to help other people on a voluntary basis. So we set up a different structure, one which was much more gridded, much more of a matrix to ensure that we were achieving more of that. It tends, though, of course, to be business that grabs the headlines. And one of the impressions that people had was that uh, business had less access to Theresa May. She was less interested in engaged with business. During the election campaign, we didn't see a letter from business leaders. Is that a fair reflection of her attitude to business? No, I don't think so. I think that the Prime Minister's engagement with business just took on a different form. So there was quite a significant amount of engagement that went on in different parts of the country, that went on in different, um, in, in different areas. So again, when you're looking at creating a view where you can find out what's going on in Aberdeen or Aberystwyth, you know, you're outside of the of what had previously been the norm. And I think that that gave her a greater diversity of contribution. The way that that had been conducted during the campaign it was a slightly different business to that which we've been doing sort of number 10. So diversity of contribution whilst in government, perhaps not quite that same diversity of contribution whilst we were campaigning for the election. And how difficult is it, given that in many ways she was sort of setting herself against business? In, and appearing less business friendly than David Cameron had before. She was taking on the big business leaders. She was talking about putting workers on boards. It was far more about the workers rather than the employers. Does that, does that make your job more difficult? No, I don't think it did. I thought we had some very constructive dialogue. What tended to happen is that there was less of it that tended to be reported. So anyone who felt that they might have had their privileged access removed in the way that they'd had with previous occupants of Number 10 felt that there was more of a fuss to make. But, you know, day in, day out, hour in, hour out, there was plenty of engagement that went on between those who had something constructive to say, somebody who wanted to make a contribution to what we were looking at within our own political agenda. And I, and I didn't see that hesitate at any stage over the over the, uh, over the the 10 months that I was there working for her. Sam, let me bring you in. What was your impression of the way that Theresa's interacted with business? Well, even before you get to how Theresa chose to deal with the business community, what you've got to remember about this parliament, about this period, is that business is facing some of the biggest challenges because of government that it will face in our lifetimes. Because of Brexit, we have to have a whole new immigration system. We have to have a whole new way of working uh, with um, country uh, with businesses overseas. We have to make sure that supply chains work in and out of the country. So just setting aside the question, first of all, of whether she was nice to big business, nice to small business, got on with them well in person, didn't get on well with them in person, was mean about them in her conference speech or was lovely about them in her conference speech. Setting aside all of those things, which are to some extent flotsam and jotsam, um, the big questions are uh, the policy questions that are on the table. And here we are one year on and we have no answers. So I think it is very hard to argue that Theresa May has a strong relationship to business because all of the things that business need have been thrown up in the air and 12 months on, we have zero answers. Is that fair, Chris? You, you put in the structures to communicate with business, but you didn't have anything to communicate to them. 
No, I think we had a, I think we had quite a sort of strong two-way process, but there was no rushing about the way those policies were made <laughs> in place. That's one way of so putting like it. it how, many, how many times did you have to say Brexit means Brexit and we're going to make I, a Personally, I made a point of never saying that. It was becoming, it had become too much of a cliche by that stage. But what did occur was, you know, the way that even within the policy unit, so we'd make sure that that contribution came in. And the policy unit had a strong constructive engagement process that went on. And those ideas did come in and those ideas were fed in. And if we're going to describe, you know, a dialogue with businesses, that's got to be a two-way process. They're bound to say things to us that we might find a little uncomfortable. But equally, we've got to be able to say things to them which are just as uncomfortable. Once you can be open about all that, and my experience over the last 10 months was that, that had been the case. You know, this isn't something we want to formulate over on the back of a fag packet. One of the defining influences on Theresa May for the first 12 months was her advisor, Nick Timothy. Can you, Chris, hand on heart say that Nick Timothy was properly prepared to engage with and listen to the concerns of business? I don't think that it was necessarily something that Nick would have taken on as a responsibility. <laughs> it would have definitely would have come through either both myself or John Godfrey or indeed, you know, any of those other lines. But it was there was a leap through it. I certainly never felt there was any denial of access or any shortage of communication between business and the Prime Minister directly. Katie, from your point of view, the the public communication was trying to shift away, you know, the country for the many, not the few, although I th- that's probably a Labour slogan, isn't it? But the uh, they all mix into one. It's all, it all everybody says the same thing these days. Um, but you were trying to communicate something different to the previous Cameron regime. So did you find that sometimes you were in conflict with Chris? You were trying to kick business, and Chris was saying, "God, oh, don't do that." No, I mean, in fact, um, I think that our team was quite quite um, open to working with business. I worked with many who uh, came into Number Ten to talk to the Prime Minister and Chris's team primarily, but I wanted to talk to them on the way out to make sure that we were all aligned and we had, you know, we were on the same page. But we forget why people voted for Brexit in the first place, which is a reason why Theresa May took office. Um, and the, re- you know, the rejection of uh, David Cameron and his campaign to remain in the EU. And that was not just about Europe. It was about how people thought about the elite, those in Westminster who live in a bubble, who are cozying up to big business and don't care about us in the rest of the country. So Theresa May's point was that we have to work with big business and indeed we want to, but we also need to make sure that we understand when they spoke up at the time of the referendum, people were not listening. Business did not chime with people on the streets. And Theresa May picked up on that. And so therefore she felt that she had to make, you know, reach out further to them and say to them exactly what is it that you don't like about big business what is it you don't like about government working with big business and how can we change that and some of the things that she said stood on the steps of number 10 a year ago this month and said chimed really well with how she wanted business to change not just not just the government to change but business to change also chris what's the challenge now for your successor in downing street to as the, the process of Brexit grinds remorselessly on and the warnings become louder and louder and we've even seen this week businesses, manufacturing groups, even cabinet ministers warning that the sort of big, very, very, very big trade deal that Donald Trump might be offering us won't make up for losses from Brexit. And that sort of, how much more difficult is that task going to be to try and keep business on side? I think the real challenge lies in the capacity the real challenge lies in you know how much more we how much stays and remains concentrated in number ten, and how much of it, more of it goes back out to the ministries, whether that's to DCMS on the technology side, whether it's to Bayes, whether it sits in Dexu. There's got to be a little bit more of the widening of that net to ensure that in each of those departments and ministries, they have got that opportunity to be able to harness those inputs, ensure that it's refined to a degree that then comes into number ten in a slightly more digestible sort of state, so that you know it can be easily briefed to the to the to the PM. But 
But I think the capacity l- lies there. It will just require a little bit of reinforcement and a little bit of restructuring to make sure that it should exist. That engagement goes on anyway. We talked about you know the the business representation that went on with um, with David Davis on Friday. I mean, Greg Clarke, who had been there with him, has a regular meeting with all the business representative organisations every week or every other week, where he listens to all of those, all of their all of their uh, their issues, and make sure that he provides them with an immediate feedback on it. So I think all that's in place. I think there is a lot of structure of government that can cope with that. I think there is more of a refinement of process for that uh, to deal with that capacity. As the, as the clock ticks on, as we get closer and closer and closer to Brexit, more people will now be sitting up, more people will now see what they require in regulation, more people will now see how do they find their way through the Brexit jungle? How do they get from where they are to where they want to be? And that's going to be one of the most significant challenges. One of the criticisms of the early May number 10 was control freakery and everything had to go through particularly Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill which caused backlogs and you know control freakery and whatever Do you, is that what you think needs to change no I think it's about understanding how you how much freedom you give others to to work through so if you, you take Bayes or take DCMS or take DSU they'll all have their own network of contacts and their own, own, own networks of uh, of sources of information you've got to be a little bit more relaxed about the fact that they're running their networks and we're running our networks and if you gear those effectively, then you'll come out with a process. You can't simply own all of that. You, there isn't the capacity to be able to, sort of, to do so. And I, in my time at number 10, I never tried to do that at all. I always thought it was much more effective to just allow people to do what they did best and then to come up with a refined process and, and indeed have a product that was easily digestible for the PM to understand. Well, it's fascinating. I'm sure the business reaction to Brexit that unfolds will be one of the um, <laughs> the many interesting things which happens over the uh, coming months. Let's move on, though, and talk uh, a bit more about politics and Katie Perrier. Theresa May's election campaign offered a dose of harsh reality. She now needs to offer hope and a sense of optimism. The PM's legacy can be more than just a failed campaign or a rocky Brexit negotiation. It can restore people's faith in the Conservative Party and communicate we do give a damn about their lives. The future of the Tory brand is in her hands. Now, one of the uh, overwhelming... You have these sort of the same conversation over and over again in Westminster at the moment with Tory MPs. One is, you know, what the hell are we going to do? She's got to stay because there's an alternative as a leader, but... We can't have a stay because that will be a disaster as well. And the other is to lament the lack of hope and optimism in the uh, Conservative campaign. Were you surprised by that? I was. I mean, I can't say I sat there and thought that the manifesto was terrible because um, when you were 24 points ahead in the, in the lead when she started off, really no, nobody would have blamed them if they came up with a manifesto that was only three pages long because we thought that this was going to be home and dry and they're going to be 80, 70, 80 seat majorities. And so... Um, I don't think it was wholly that, but when you are compared to Jeremy Corbyn, who doesn't have to worry about the fact that he's got to balance the books and this kind of very you know, boring, straightforward, continuity, conservative offer, having to defend a seven-year uh, term already in government, um, to, compared to Jeremy Corbyn, who offered some really eye-catching things that the manifesto went down really well, then we did miss a trick. And to not learn from that, the minute that you can come back into number 10 with your tail between your legs and uh, with showing some humility, um, to not learn from that and to then move on and offer some of that in the future, I think is, is missing a trick. And I don't mean necessarily you know massive giveaways or big cash injections, but a real commitment to some of the things that she spoke about on the steps of number 10 last year. She's now saying that this week. She's now saying that she will be bold. She will go back to these things that she... She campaigned and you know, stood on, um, and but I think it's you know too many words and not enough 
action. So what we now need to see is some real action in some of these things that we really care about. And to show that actually it's not the Conservatives versus the lovely, cuddly Labour Party. You know, a man that looks like, you know, your granddad that's really cute and cuddly. Actually, he's had 30 years in kind of active activism in, in Labour Party politics and some of his best friends are not very nice people. However, you know, we, we look like the bad guys compared to Jeremy Corbyn at the moment and we need to rebalance that. And so there's a real push, I think, for Conservatives to, that worried that in the long term, whatever happens, our long term brand is being massively damaged. Um, she's hired Robbie Gibb, the former editor of Daily Politics and Sunday Politics, as your replacement in number 10. What did you make of that? I think it's a good move. I think that he really understands the connection that Theresa May, Prime Minister, has to have with the audience. He understands the power of pictures and the power of social media. So the BBC will be at the forefront of making sure the stuff that they produce is you know, shareable quality. Labour Party were brilliant at that in the election. Conservatives weren't. And, well, we uh, we know, were told when Theresa first became Prime Minister, there was less of all that Twitter nonsense. It was all very David Cameron and she wasn't going to be tweeting and all that. Do you, do you think that maybe a bit more engagement on social media is now needed. Yeah, I mean, it goes too far. So you can say that we don't, you know, tweet about Coronation Street, you know, storylines, and we don't, <laughs> which is, you know, something the previous Prime Minister did, and we don't, you know, talk about someone's tax returns. I think that's 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 realistic. But to absolutely leave that space in that vacuum so that someone else comes to fill it is not. And, you know, we need to understand about how people get their news these days and how we then make sure we're producing good content, stuff that it's easy for them to share and read and, and you know, talk about, um, and, and make sure we fill that vacuum. And I would be incredibly frustrated a lot of the time at number 10 where I'd say, can we tweet about this? Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, and I'd get an absolute no back. And um, I thought... That it was slightly ludicrous. I remember once uh, on a flight somewhere, Theresa May said, you know, people don't talk in hashtags. We don't say, pass the hashtag newspaper and can I have a hashtag coffee, please? <laughs> and she is right. <laughs> she is right. Well, you're in the Westminster bubble, Sam. And yeah, I'm not sure that that in the yes, outside world. Yes, but, but there so is a balance. Is there's yeah. a balance. So there's a balance to be had. And we went too far the other way. And I think we need to come back into, you know, that space where the Labour Party occupied during the election. Chris, do you think Theresa May can be the hopey, changey leader? Because she's quite good at doing serious statement outside number 10, responding to terrible event or, you know, addressing the nation at time of need. Can she be hopey, changey? I, I think it comes back to sort of Katie's point, you know, if you're going to put a hashtag in front of that, then probably, probably not. But what you do have is that longer term, more meticulous, more uh, steady approach to how we get ourselves from where we want to be to to where we'd like to end up. And that focusing on longer term objectives is very much part of the Prime Minister's strength. She does think in terms of months, years and where we're going out in, you know, in advance rather than that sort of slightly social media driven piece where it's always about what's happening right now in the next hour, in the next day and a week of a push. So I do think if you're going to look for something that's longer, that's going to keep the Conservative Party in the direction we want it to be going to in order to keep us as a government where we want to be going to, then I do think Theresa May remains the right choice. You could have a Prime Minister who's not a fan of hashtags and tweeting herself, yeah. but other people around her should know that people are using social media. That's the issue here isn't it so was it her saying don't do it or nick and fiona saying don't do it where was the everyone everyone pretty much everyone except a 35 strong communications team at the other end of the office <laughs> putting their hair out um and i think that but the thing the good the good news is is that a new arrival of a director of communications means that well it's not gone too well so far so that when you're at the rock bottom, oh, the only is way is up yeah therefore you'll be listened to yeah. and you'll you'll be able to command 
and the control of the building a lot more than I ever could when you know I was working with some of my previous colleagues and so he has a real opportunity now to be able to do some of these things and you know why not you know make a series of videos from number 10 why not do a load of these different things that we wanted to do that we're never able to do and you know I think he's got the ability to do that now there goes Katie um, suggesting, as it were, the Gordon Brown relaunch style of uh, <laughs> approach to um, Theresa. Smile, two Gordon. Point, We're doing a change. Um, <laughs> if I may, for a moment, just inevitably put the, put the case for the prosecution. Love him, um, Sam. <laughs> it, I think it looks like this. Um, Wes Streeting, the Labour MP, came up with a rather nice phrase about the election campaign. He said... Uh, that uh, the Tory campaign looked like a corner of Narnia, uh, where it was forever winter and never Christmas, and that really, <laughs> and that for me summed up the Tory, the Tory election campaign. And to be honest, Theresa May, um, because um, you wanted to do a ray of sunshine, I've never seen her do a ray of sunshine in all the time I've been watching it from the outside. Now she may be as smiley as a cuddly bunny inside Number Ten, but we just don't see that on the outside, and and the public has made up their mind about about that. But I think the problem is bigger than that um, for this reason. Um, her only remaining hope of clinging to power is to suggest that she can push through difficult decisions. Now, I think the chief whip would tell her that she can't because she does not have the parliamentary arithmetic to do so. She can sort of go for some sludgy centre ground um, uh, sort of compromise where uh, she finds areas that she can cooperate with Jeremy Corbyn on in order to sort of get them through Parliament, but they won't look terribly exciting and the opposition will claim every last bit of credit for it. But she cannot do difficult things. She is a serious person for serious times, but difficult decisions are out of her reach. And therefore, it's hard to see quite where she goes from here to improve her reputation. So therefore, she needs to look for things that she doesn't need that compromise on, that she doesn't need that parliamentary approval for. She needs to push ahead with things that she can leave as a legacy behind other than a failed election campaign. One of the areas I suggest is big, you know, pushing through some house building programme across the UK and also really making strides on mental health because she promised that in steps to number 10 last year. Um, but forgive me, both the examples to the two examples that you cited, mental health and house building, are not without massive opposition. You need more money for the NHS if you're going to do something radical and transformative with the mental health as with the rest of the NHS. You need to get councils on side, possibly through primary legislation, if you're going to force councils to accept higher house building. You are not going to do that with the current parliamentary arithmetic. That sounds great. It's out of her grasp. Well, we'll move on to what exactly Sam thinks she should be doing um, in a moment. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device. Uh, and we'll be back after these short messages. 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. Still joined in the studio by Katie Perry, Sam Coates and Chris Brannigan. And now we turn our attention to what the future might hold for Theresa May. And this is Sam Coates. Theresa May's problem with business is the same as the problem with running the country. She is in office, but not in power. One cabinet minister said to me recently that post-election they barely pay any attention at all to what Number 10 thinks now. The Conservative Party and all its MPs and peers is clinging on to Theresa May for dear life. But it's unclear how she can govern given she is so weak. I do not know how or when or who, but I find it very hard to see a May government that can last, given it's so internally vulnerable. I'm not sure this is the hopey, changey, optimistic note that Katie was looking for, uh, Sam. Um, so what's the sort of time scale do you put on this? I, I, I genuinely don't know. Uh, I, that's the question that goes around Westminster the whole time. How long will it have to last? And, and you don't know. But you've basically got two competing things going on at the moment in in Westminster. You do have every single Tory MP very cognizant that, as our YouGov poll showed last week, uh, Labour are eight points ahead in the polls. So you go to a general election, you might lose. You might put Jeremy Corbyn, you know, a handful of seats in a majority uh, in the House of Commons. That would be a total disaster. But at the same time, you've just got a what effectively looks like a non-functioning government. I, I would argue we barely have a prime minister in all, in anything but name. Uh, at the moment, let's take one example, a concrete example uh, that can uh, that allows us to put some flesh on what I'm talking about: immigration. Now, I think it's fair to say that most members of the cabinet want a more liberal immigration system that doesn't look so transformatively different to what we have at the moment, because that's what business needs and wants: small business, medium-sized business, big business. And yet, even now, I'm told that behind the scenes, Theresa May and her team are going out going, dear cabinet ministers, can you now come up with the tough trade-offs that are going to allow us to get migration down to the tens of thousands? And Theresa May is in a minority of one making that argument and getting her people to make make that argument behind closed doors. And it completely doesn't suggest that she's learnt, uh, she's got the internal humility and she's learnt the lessons that she claims that she's learnt about where her power has, has been left post election. You've got public rows between the Chancellor and the Brexit Secretary, between Boris and most of the Cabinet. Uh, You've got people positioning in public and in in private. Uh, To me, the biggest problem now is not that the the, the wider parliamentary party wants her to stay. It's that the Cabinet is all going off in different directions and there's no referee at the centre. And I just wonder how long that can last, because with departments going off in their own directions, when there needs to be a tough centre to work things out, I'm not quite sure what happens next. 
So, Chris, how long can we carry on without a referee in the centre, as Sam describes it? Well, I think that, you know, the point that Sam makes about departments going off in different directions, it isn't, isn't, doesn't necessarily mean that this is out of control. I don't think that's the suggestion at all. I think you've got a degree more freedom for each of those departments and ministries to do a little bit more thing and a little bit more freedom and a little bit more leeway for ministers to take things forward whilst working toward that common objective, which I think the Prime Minister is very good at setting and establishing for them. That's just a shift and a change in the way that we have done things previously. Now, you know, Sam's point is that that's not how we've seen the Prime Minister work so far. But I don't think that doesn't that means that you know, that can't be how she does it as we go forward. It may be that that is the way we choose to be able to take ourselves further forward and make that degree of progress. Um, I think you would be right, Chris, in any other circumstance other than in an environment where we have to do Brexit. Any Cabinet Secretary would te- be telling the whole of government, do as little as possible. Unfortunately, we're doing the biggest thing in our lifetimes. That's the problem. I agree. We're going to come, you know, here as we head into toward the autumn, we're about to find something where it really does have to be so tight and sort of so under control. But there are degrees of leery, which may be a change from how we've been over the last over the last 10 months, maybe a change about how we've been over the last 10 days. It may look as though it's going to change. <laughs> over the last 10 minutes. We update our cliches today, 20 minutes is now a long time in politics. Um, you know, there may well be that there's a case for that. And I, I do take the point that there does have to be greater stricter control that goes on to it. But the heavy lifting all that is going to be done by Dexu come come the autumn when we're really starting to engage with those, you know, within the commission who are going to who are going to do more of it. And it may just be that there's a point as we head over the summer where and with recess that, that just settles down into something that reaches a more natural level. Okay, so there's a difference between sort of managed chaos or, you know, managed relaxation to allow ministers a bit more freedom to think and do what it is they want to do. And what we've actually seen, which is, uh, you know, ministers popping up, including David Davis at our own uh, Time CO Summit. He he came out and said one thing on the same day that Philip Hammond was in Germany, publicly at odds with the Foreign Secretary. It, it, the whole thing feels... There's a difference between people exploring their own briefs a bit more enthusiastically and just everyone being everywhere, whatever. They were just worried that after... the. the turn of events this year you were running out of news Matt to be honest that's why <laughs> my holidays booked just, I don't care I'm going sure you were, well, I'm the last well, exactly. they were making sure you were still listening <laughs> Matt went on holiday and suddenly there was an election <laughs> the election was called having been promised by a very senior person that there wouldn't be an election <laughs> I was promised by a very senior person that there wouldn't be an election as well um, so uh, but just reflecting back quickly on what Sam said Sam talked about a need a business need to make sure that they, we understand what we need from immigration but Theresa May is also thinking about what the country wants from immigration and they are two different things and she needs to find somewhere in the middle where she can meet that demand because businesses quite clearly need the flexibility and they need to carry on you know serving their customers and you know making sure they can fulfill their orders and have flexible immigration in the UK and the people voted for Brexit and one of the reasons why they voted for Brexit is because they felt that immigration was out of control and she wants to bring control back now I think right in the middle of that lies the word choice and when the EU tells you who you can take the public don't like it very much. When we choose, then it stands for British government. If you don't like the choice that we made, then you bin off that British government and you replace it with another one. And so I think that the position on immigration we need to get to right in the middle there is the choice. The choice to have that flexibility. So if those you know business leaders need them, but for a certain period of time, um, to make sure that people understand that overall we know need it needs to become under control. However, there is a real problem in terms of uh, Theresa May connecting with people on issues like this and making sure that 
her cabinet ministers who have been kept quiet for nearly a year all of a sudden are very trigger happy and going off in lots of different directions i think she should almost let them get it out of their systems a bit this summer um and then hopefully say that when we come back in the autumn we do need to regroup we do need to put some of those controls back in place because you can't swing from one end which is complete control freakery to another which is complete free for all because both of those in their different ways are you know not ideal by any by any stretch of the imagination so when she comes back when they come back in the autumn i think that she needs to say to them uh, either you ship shape and you realize what's going on here your mistakes will cost us uh, you know this this country and jeremy corbyn will take over or you play ball a bit more and we try and get things back onto an even kill but it's gonna be exceptionally difficult i think because if she doesn't show that strength i mean that that pitch this week to ask the Labour Party to participate in a compromise in a number of things areas. That would have been great if she did that on the steps of number 10 last year, um, post a Brexit result. And indeed, that would have been okay if she did that on June the 9th this year. Doing it from a position of weakness now is a real struggle. And the, 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 the speeches she did on June the 9th outside Downing Street was one of the most tone-deaf politically inept acts we've seen in a recent period of quite a lot of politically inept acts. I genuinely thought that she picked up the wrong speech, <laughs> that she picked up the one that said 70, 80 majority, woohoo, and instead of the one that said uh, this is a disaster and you need to go out there and face the electorate. Now someone in the background was constantly be telling her that she polled one of the highest ever Conservative victories known to man or woman uh, whilst in there and that actually you know, she won this election, she didn't lose it, she won this election. Um, and so that would still be going on in her brain in the background that, you know, how do I position myself here? Do I go out strong and say, we did win this election, look at the vote share that we got, look at the you know, support that we got, or um, actually show some humility? And I would not have let her out that door without saying to people, what we offered was somewhere not enough, in some way not enough. And we need to look at that and wonder why. So, In the way that you talk about Theresa, you talk about somebody uh, for whom the advice is very, very, very important. Mm. But I'm always left wondering, but what about her? Yeah. Can't she see what's in front of her, what she needs to say herself? It's like there's no filter between the advice and what she does. Tell me, is there anybody inside that prime ministerial body at all? Because it doesn't feel like it from the way you've just described her. There is, but we've got to let her do that. And I'm afraid that when I was in number 10, I felt that we practically didn't even let the Prime Minister breathe without you know all these advisors telling her exactly what to do. Oh, not all these advisors, two advisors telling her what to do. I don't think she has been in an environment where that hasn't happened for several years. And so now she is finding herself in that environment and we are all watching with you know, anticipated breath as to how she's going to, you know, how that's going to play out. But can I ask Chris? Katie's just presented the picture of a hostage as our Prime Minister. Do we have a hostage as our Prime Minister? No, I don't think we do. I think we've got somebody who, you know, has felt slightly bound by what's gone over the sort of last ten months. But the Prime Minister has never has never, you know, suggested that she you know, she's the only one with those with those ideas. Certainly in business engagement, whether outside of number ten or you know, or inside at, at, at smaller events, the Prime Minister will clearly say to business leaders, look, you know, we, I don't have a monopoly on good ideas. You know, this house does not have a monopoly on good ideas. If you've got something you want to contribute then you know please i want to hear it either through chris or through katie or through john godfrey or whoever it happened to be in each of the directorates and that is part of it and that it is that slightly diligent methodical form that the pm likes to take of just weighing this up and measuring it and looking at it in her own time and then coming up with her own idea that that forms from it but it's not a swift it's not necessarily a swift process it tends to be on that longer term objective than it is on something else katie 
could we possibly get to a point, and I'm asking this because I don't know the exact answer, um, whereby we will have a begrudging respect for Theresa May because being in this job that she obviously doesn't want or like and she's, you know, she's in that role right now where no one would want to be in Theresa May's shoes, right? So uh, could we get to the position where the country might think, look, you know, she's doing this because it's her duty. She's saying she got us there in, in this mess. She's going to get us out of it. She's willing to get to to dedicate herself for as long as it takes for what the party wants her. I think there is a begrudging respect there, but it is also coupled with a, you know what, this is not doing a great thing long term for a Tory brand that wants to be, you know, the, the saviour of some of these things that we talked about earlier. Um, and so uh, she has to grapple with that. But I think maybe we might look back in time. History may be a bit kinder to Theresa May than we currently are. Will Britain feel sorry for Theresa May because she was unable to do what she wanted because there were two mean advisers telling her what to do at all stages <laughs> and then took the country at a point of national crisis and an important moment and delivered a weak and wobbly um, minority government and a hung parliament as we prepared to make the most difficult decisions that our country will ever make in our lifetime? I think my question answers itself. And that's why Sam was the most dreaded journalist when I was in number 10. <laughs> Just uh, before we wind up, because we've talked a lot about Nick and Fiona, uh, do you think Theresa would have been a better Prime Minister had she not had them in Downing Street? Let's start with you, Chris. Prime Minister had access to a really diverse range of contribution. I mean, we've already talked about how, where it occurred in different places, what she set up, how she set up, whether planned to do all of that. And I think having had having had a slightly freer approach with all of that might have given her a greater breadth of ideas and that might have resulted in, in a very different perspective from her. Katie's talked a lot about um, working number 10 and she's got um, a big piece in the Sun in the Times magazine this Saturday uh, so make sure you um, pick that up um, does her experience chime with your experience there was it was it a nightmare working with Nick and Fiona no it wasn't a nightmare working with Nick and Fiona every, every working environment has got difficulties that go with it most of that is my understatement of the year so much but I have worked in very difficult places before and this doesn't compare to it um, to be fair he had taken troops over the age of Basel yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. maybe I, I haven't had, had the kind of experience you succeeded in Basra but not in Westminster. <laughs> there's a certain amount of agility that means you can look at any situation and there's something positive about this. Bear in mind my focus was always outside of the house rather than inside the house. So a very different experience to meet the directorates. But I, I never thought it was quite as as, as grim as I might be portrayed. I can see where when it's much more immediate, when it's much more about what you've got to do right here, right now, as it is in the, in the comms directorate, different to my team who are looking at working in weeks, months, years, a, a slightly different burner and so therefore a different experience. Katie, you would use the word nightmare, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And other words. Uh, you, the question you asked was that would Theresa May have been a better Prime Minister without them? Uh, yes, but I don't think she would have been Prime Minister without them. Okay, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think yeah. that um, she, you know, during her time at home, the Home Office, where they work with her very closely, Home Office is a gig you give someone when you don't want them to survive very long, right? And everybody's kept on thinking, wow, Theresa May survived another year. In fact, she's done really well on that. She's deported some radical clerics and she's done a bit of this and a bit of that, um, uh, you know, quite successfully. And so, uh, you know, whilst my time at number 10 was not full of joy, um, I do appreciate that she, I don't think she would have been Prime Minister without them. Does that go back to Nick, uh, Sam's point that she didn't, she was only really a creation of them, that everything she said and did was what they wrote down and told us to do, and now she's gone, she's, now they're gone, she's incredibly vulnerable? 
No, because I saw the Theresa May before they arrived. I saw the Theresa May back in 2002, one, two, three, where um, she did the Nazi party speech. I saw Theresa May that, you know, was, was being absolutely sat on by traditionalists within the party. And she was the original moderniser and she wasn't prepared to have any of that. So there is a Theresa May yeah, underneath absolutely. that. And now, you know, hopefully we'll see some more of that. Lucky Britain. <laughs> right um, subscribe to the podcast as ever on iTunes on your Android device you can sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box if you are listening to this in the week of July the 10th 2017 then pick up Katie's uh, excellent article in the Times magazine this weekend but for now my thanks to my guests Katie Perrier Chris Bannigan and Sam Coates for me Matt Chorley it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.